as the children get dismissed, why don't we stand and just take a moment to greet each other. You can say, joy to the world, joy to your life. Just joy to see you. It's a joy to know you. We need to announce a special anniversary this morning. Um, you guys probably already know this, but this is the 60th sermon in our Gospel of Mark series. You've made it! Just kidding, there's more sermons. But, said the last one, we made it to 60, and that's it's a pretty big milestone, so I thought we'd acknowledge that. Um, I don't know what we'll do if I ever speak through the, a book like Isaiah or one of the longer books, but good on you guys for enduring. I hope you're enjoying the series. Um, we are going through the Gospel of Mark. We've been doing it, obviously, for quite some time, taking a few breaks in, uh, at different, ve- uh, different points. But we're doing that because we believe that coming to a clear and comprehensive understanding of who Jesus is gives us a better understanding of what it means to follow him. And so instead of just navigating to particular passages or teachings of Jesus that kind of resonate with us, we're going to kind of go through the whole gospel and make sure that our um, discipleship, our followership of Jesus is informed by a robust, sophisticated, uh, broad understanding and comprehensive understanding of um, who Jesus reveals himself to be, particularly in the Gospel of Mark. And, and we're going to look at Mark 14, 12 to 26. This is the, uh, we've had a number of weeks just in this passage where Jesus is instituting uh, a new covenant meal kind of over top of or in complement with the Passover celebration. And I've asked uh, Anna Wardle if she'd come and do our scripture reading this morning. And that'll be from Mark 12, verses, tw- uh, sorry, Mark 14, verses 12 to 26. On the first day on the Feast of Unleavened Bread, when it was customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb, Jesus' disciples asked him, where do you want us to go and make preparations for you to eat the Passover? So he sent two of his disciples, telling them, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. Say to the owner of the house he enters, the teacher asks, where is my guest room where I might eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large upper room furnished and ready. Make preparations for us there. The disciples left, went into the city, and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. When evening came, Jesus arrived with the twelve. While they were reclining at the table eating, he said, I tell you the truth, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They were saddened, and one by one they said to him, Surely not I. It is one of the twelve, he replied, one who dips bread into the bowl with me. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him, but woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take it, this is my body. Then he took the cup, gave thanks, and offered it to them, and they all drank from it. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, he said to them. I tell you the truth, I will not eat again, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it anew in the kingdom of God. And they went, when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Okay, so the last two weeks we've been kind of steeping in this passage and exploring the implications. 
of Jesus' new covenant meal given to us as a new kind of Passover meal. So very quick review. The Old Testament's defining event, the big event that gives shape to the Old Testament and helps God's people on, a, on the most foundational level understand who they are is the Exodus, when they are saved out, of, out from under Pharaoh's oppression and brought out of Egypt and exit Egypt. And they commemorate that movement later through a feast called the Passover. And so the Passover feast is the most important feast because it commemorates the most important event. So it would be, um, to a Jewish person, kind of the Easter. It's, it's the apex. It's the climax that shows God's power and his intent to deliver his people from bondage, from a place of slavery, to a place of freedom and joy under his rule and reign. And so for a first century Jew, the Passover as a, as a feast, as a celebration, which happened once a year, was, um, was a, a massive, massive deal because it was about rekindling and renewing hope in a God who saves from places of oppression and from places of suppression and tyranny and rescues us into a spacious place. And the Hebrew word for salvation actually has this um, innuendo in it, or this little clue that what we're talking about is moving from a place of confinement to a place of openness. And so salvation is about moving from a place where we are restricted and constricted and, and um, we can move into a, an expansive space where we have room to breathe, where we have room to flourish and love God, love our neighbors in a way that is not restricted in any uh, anti-God, anti-life way. And for Jesus to say, I'm going to give you a new meal, but I'm doing it during the Passover festival. I'm doing it as a Passover sort of 2.0 meal. That says something very significant to us, and it should give us a clue that Jesus wants to make sure we understand that what he is about is not simply um, establishing a path so that we can have our sins forgiven. That is a foundational part of the gospel, very, very important part of the good news that in Christ we can have our sins forgiven. But by putting his new covenant meal over the Passover meal, he's saying, it's not just for the forgiveness of sins that I've come. It's that through the forgiveness of sins, and by coming into relationship with me, like Matt uh, saying this morning, as I come to know you, I can begin saving you into a new kind of life. And that is very, very different than just having our sins forgiven. It's forgiven sins and a new creation power at work in us. So today I want to continue teaching on kind of the Lord's Supper, what we call, sometimes call communion, and continue to make some of these connections between this first exodus and this new exodus. And, and I think there are connections that should inspire us in our faith. They, they should challenge us. Um, I've had a few people comment like, oh, that, you know, these last few weeks have really helped me help, kind of help ensure that I will likely not take communion the same way again moving forward in my life. And that's kind of what I think Jesus intends when we study and understand what he's trying to accomplish. So when we leave Egypt, I want to talk about two things that um, just as I've mulled over it and studied and, and reflected, the, these things really come into view. This is really important. Um, leaving Egypt. Number one, when we leave Egypt, and again, Egypt in the Bible uh, starts off as a literal force of oppression, which then gets used later on as a symbol for the oppression of sin, sin's constraining um, uh, uh, force in our lives. So we're called to leave Egypt, our own personal uh, ways of living that are outside of God, 
And as we do, we're called to leave Egypt eating unleavened bread. That's a really important part of any Passover celebration is that you don't just eat bread generally, you eat unleavened bread, bread without leaven, without yeast in it. And there's a very uh, specific reason why that is the case. And that is in the Bible, leaven is almost always, not always, but it's almost always used as a metaphor for sin. Um, In the same way that a little leaven or a little yeast can get into dough and it can't be contained or controlled in that. It kind of spreads to the whole thing. That is a metaphor that Jewish teachers, and in the New Testament, Jesus as a Jewish teacher, um, re-clarifies as a pretty accurate dis- description of what sin is. Sin isn't something that when it comes, when, it gives, when it's birthed in your heart and comes into your life, it's not something you can contain and control and say, well, it's only going to affect over here. It's something that we might use the metaphor like a virus that can spread throughout the whole body. And so during the Passover, it's specifically commanded by God to eat unleavened bread to remind his people that you leave Egypt by putting to death patterns and practices of sin in your life that, like leaven, um, are dangerous because even though there can just be a little in your life, it can affect everything and it can um, become a life-shaping influence. And so we're to leave Egypt in haste. We talked about that. Um, But in 1 Corinthians 5-7, when Paul is writing to the Corinthian church, he uses this metaphor of unleavened bread to them. He says this, he says, get rid of the old yeast that you may be a new batch without yeast, as you really are. For Christ, your Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. A few things to notice there. Number one is the obvious metaphor. He's like, when you come together and eat the Lord's Supper and you're having unleavened bread, make that be a reminder that if there are patterns of willful sinfulness in your life, you need to put those away. You need to become like a new batch of bread dedicated to God that doesn't have leaven or yeast in it. And then he he adds this um, qualifier. He says, I want you to be a new batch without yeast as you are. And that's significant because what he's saying is that's actually your fundamental identity. You're not trying to be someone that you're not. You might look at your old life and say, oh, that was really me. But actually, your new life, holiness and righteousness in Christ, that's who you are. So I'm not telling you to become someone different. I'm telling you to live into the reality of who you actually are. So it's not that the sin gets to define who you are. It's Christ's righteousness that does. So now you kind of act in accordance with who you are in Jesus. Now, there's an entire series that I could go into just on this whole element of... um, yeast and unleavened bread and dealing with sin. But there are two extremes that I want to touch on because in the Christian subculture, um, this idea of kind of how do we talk about sin, how do we confront sin, how do we deal with sin can go in one of two extreme directions. And I really think that I, um, I, I want to highlight what each of these extremes are because I really want us to work at avoiding both of them. The first extreme, when we talk about sin or putting sin to death, is that we can actually become really sin-focused. We can think that the point of Christianity is just to be focused on our sins all the time and not doing sinful things, and then when we do sinful things, to really feel deeply guilty and shameful about it and, 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 and drive that shame deep into us, which will hopefully give us, uh, overwhelm us with enough shame that we'll uh, refrain from doing those same sins again. And this is not 
a picture of the Christian life. Although within some teachers and, and subcultures, this very much is the message that people get Sunday after Sunday, teaching after teaching. That the point of the Christian life is to be focused on sin and to not do it. And this is, I think, an unhealthy and an, an extreme unhealthy occupation. It's not biblical. I don't think it's what Christians are called to. I think the fruit of it is pretty clear. Um, you, you, you swim in these waters long enough and you will become a miserable, hardened person. And the reason is, is the actual object of your faith is sin. And so the more you double down into it, even if it's an originally for good intentions, I want to get rid of this sin, I'm going to be so focused on it, I'm not going to lie, I'm not going to steal, I'm not going to look at these things, I'm not going to uh, use these words, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not. Because sin is the object of your faith, it can distort you. It becomes the focus of your faith. It, it, be, it becomes what you start seeing in other people. You start seeing all the other ways that other people um, aren't sensitized to how much sin is in their life. And it can either result in a tremendously condemnatory attitude towards other people who aren't taking sin as seriously as you are, or a, a, a self-condemnatory attitude that is a um, unbearable burden that we're not supposed to walk with as Christians. So one extreme is to be incredibly sin-focused. But you could see how that could be an understandable view that people might get to when the Bible talks about sin as a serious thing, right? So this is just an overcompensation in one direction. The other extreme that Christians can fall into is to be grace-focused. Now, that might sound strange. That might sound stranger than uh, to, to frame that as something that can be negative because we all love God's grace and God's grace is amazing. Can you have too much grace? No, you cannot have too much grace in your life. And our lives as Christians are defined by the grace of God, being sustained by grace, being led into grace. But what I mean by grace-focused is that... <clears throat> Um, we can adopt a posture. posture. Sometimes this is called, in some, in some circles you'll hear the language hypergrace. And this refers to a posture that says, um, as a Christian, the great promise of Christianity is that all my sins are forgiven. So I don't need to carry around guilt or shame. And what that does is that becomes a license to sin. Because all my sin is covered over by Jesus' blood. So the good news of Christianity is I get to live like anyone else in the world does. I just don't have to feel guilty about it because Jesus paid for my sins and I don't have to live with guilt or shame. So the other extreme, um, instead of doubling down on sin and making sin the focus of your faith, is making grace the focus of your faith to such an extent that you actually don't care whether or not your life is leavened or not. It's kind of like, whatever. I, all I know is that Jesus paid for my sins and that's awesome. Praise God. So I just get to kind of live in a very casual attitude. I don't really take a lot of time for self-reflection or for confession or repentance in any meaningful way. I did that like way back in the day. I asked Jesus to forgive my sins. That's for all time. and That's good. So I'm, I'm good now. So I have a very cavalier attitude towards sin. Again, grounded in something biblical, you know, grace, but it's kind of a hyper grace. It's grace um, that you use as leverage to not actually have to allow God to reform you as a person. And in this, sin is not the focus of your faith, but I would argue that you are the focus of your faith. It's yourself. You are the object of your faith. And faith becomes a very selfish thing because faith is something that basically empowers you to feel good about the life that you want to live. What I love about Jesus 
is that he forgives me and frees me from shame, so then I get to choose how I want to live, and he is just kind of rubber stamping. Forgiveness, got it, got your back, no problem. Isn't he great? Well, that's obviously a very selfish way to live, even though we might be presenting that to other people as, oh, I'm just all about grace. I'm all about God's love. Well, who's going to argue with that? Well, you should argue with it if using those words or those concepts are a shield to not confront sin in your life. We are to leave Egypt in haste. We are to leave Egypt eating unleavened bread to not be comfortable with the presence of willful known sin in our lives. And so both extremes, to be sin-focused and grace-focused, are counter to the life God has for us. And how do you avoid both of those extremes? Because when I look at my journey, I've kind of oscillated between those through different stages of my life. And the only thing that has helped me is to be Jesus-focused in my faith. And I don't want that to sound trite or sound like some kind of pastoral right answer. What I mean is to consistently be in the Gospels, observing Jesus, how he engages with people, thinking on his teachings, reflecting, and again, not just the highlights of the Gospels, the stuff that appeals to me, because there are certain parts of the gospel that a sin-focused person will say, yeah, this is the real, this is the, this is the good stuff. I'm like, you don't need some of this other stuff. This is the good stuff that you need to expose yourself to in the gospel. More of the judgment, confrontational end of Jesus. Um, confronting sin. And then the grace-focused people are going to say, yeah, well, I, you know, that's not the main stuff. This is the main stuff. This is the stuff, you know, the, the parable of the prodigal son, and grace, 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 grace. And that's why we have the whole gospel. And that's why it's important to be moving through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John pretty consistently. Ideally, maybe every year, you move through the gospels once or twice. Just, just even reading it. You don't have to study every nook and cranny, but just to ex- exposure. Because when you take time to focus on Jesus, what happens is your appreciation and understanding of God's grace in your life is amplified ten times. And you begin to realize and, and walk in the sense of, I am forgiven. Jesus' blood is powerful enough to cover over my sin. And I can walk in that freedom of conscience because I've been sprinkled by the blood of Jesus via the Holy Spirit. So you get that tremendous depth of ex- experience of God's grace. And you now know that there is no condemnation in Christ. Paul talks about that in Romans 8. But you also get that sense of, as I, as I grow in my relationship to Jesus and grow in obedience to him, and not just selectively some of his commands, but all of them filtered through the lens of love God, love other people, I actually want to put sin away in my life. I'm not okay with um, patterns of sin just being left unchecked. I can't have a casual. I don't want to have a casual posture towards sin. Any pattern of thought, speech, behavior that misses the mark, and that's what the Greek word sin means, means to miss the mark, archery arrow doesn't hit the bullseye, that misses the mark of what God has for me. I don't want to be like, oh, well, it is what it is. What are you going to do? I want to consistently be bringing those to Jesus, not out of fear of condemnation, but to say, I want to become more like you, Jesus. I want to get as far away from Egypt as I can and move into the side of heaven, um, the kingdom and the power and the glory that you have prepared for me as I follow you. And as I've 
cultivated a Jesus-focused life in my own life. It's delivered me from the self-condemnation that can come from being sin-focused, and it's also delivered me out of a lifestyle where I, where I use Jesus' forgiveness to, uh, as a license to sin, where I just become very casual towards sin. And so over time, and it, it's a process, you still kind of oscillate a little bit, but you kind of find a, a through line where those are held in tension, where, like the woman caught in adultery, you find yourself experiencing deep grace and forgiveness. Does anyone here condemn you? No, no one, Lord, condemns me here. But neither do I condemn you. Now go and leave your life of sin. Right? Grace and confrontation with sin. It, it's not either or. And I think that comes in a heart and in a mind that is being shaped by the Spirit of God as we look at and focus who Jesus is. And every time we have the Lord's Supper, um, you know, we don't use unleavened bread, but maybe it's something to think about. That if we were to make that switch and start using it to recognize that I want, I want to have a life that is free from the corrupting power of sin. That's what God has for me. Not as, a, oh, those are bad things to do, but those things lead to enslavement. I'm trying to lead you into freedom. So to cultivate sin in your life, to let it ha give, to give it quarter in an area of your life, is, is, is yes, it's an offense to God and it's sinful in, in, a, in a, a vertical dimension, but it's also uh, problematic on a horizontal dimension because that is a pattern that is going to disrupt your relationships with your self-understanding, your vocation in the world with other people. So that God wants to rid us of sin in our lives so that we can live into greater joy and freedom, peace and purpose. Romans 6, uh, Paul kind of hammers this home in his letter to, to the Roman church. Uh, does it at the start of uh, chapter 6 and nearing the middle? I'll read, you the, I'll read you both passages. They're not on the PowerPoint, but I'll read them. He says, okay, so what are we going to say then? Should we go on sinning so that grace may increase? Are we going to be so focused on God's grace that we're like, oh, actually, if you think about it, if we sin more and more and more, God's grace becomes more and more amazing because as our sinfulness piles up, God's grace is always one step ahead. So wouldn't we bring more glory to God and show the greatness of God's grace by sinning more and more and more? And he says, by no means. We died to sin. How can you live in it any longer? And then, a few verses later, he says, what then? Shall we sin because we're not under the law but under grace? By no means. Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone to obey him as slaves, you are slaves to the one, um, to the one whom you obey? So you're either a slave to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you wholeheartedly obeyed the form of teaching to which you were entrusted. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. And I put this in human terms because you're weak in your natural selves. Just as you used to offer the parts of your body in slavery to impurity and ever-increasing wickedness, so now offer them in slavery to righteousness leading to holiness. When you were slaves to sin, you were free from the control of righteousness. What benefit did you reap at that time from the things that you're now ashamed of? Those things result in death. But now you've been set free from sin and have become slaves to God. And the benefit you reap leads to holiness and the result is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
So the unleavened bread of the Lord's Supper connected to Passover and to Exodus is a reminder that God is bringing you to a new place. God's intention is to move us into a really good, spacious, open place in our lives generally, in, in our vocation, in our marriage, in our friendships. And if that's, but if that's going to happen, we need to identify patterns of Egypt and not um, shrug our shoulders at them, but to humbly ask God for help in putting those things to death. And sometimes that is a painful process, as you see in the original Exodus story. A lot of the Israelites were like, let's go back. It wasn't that bad. It was pretty good. Egypt has some pros and cons. We'll find that wrestling within ourselves. But like Paul says to the church, What's the benefit of being involved in these sinful practices? Did they lead to life? Did they lead to flourishing? It's like, no, they, they resulted in death. Death, death. It, it doesn't, sin never adds anything into your life. And so put that away. And later he'll say, you know, put on Christ, be formed and learn to be conformed into the image of Jesus and watch how that um, catalyzes a revolution as you follow Jesus in your relationship with him and your relationship to other people in the world. And again, this is a process. When I'm talking about putting sin to death, I'm not saying when I became a Christian, I was really serious about handing over my life to Jesus, and from that point, I never really struggled with sin, or that if we're intentionally following Jesus, we won't struggle with sin. Again, if we understand the Exodus story, we should have some grace with ourselves in that regard. Because think about the Exodus story. You're a slave in Egypt. God says, I'm rescuing you tonight. You're getting out. They get out. They are physically transported. Their status is changed overnight. They are now no longer belong to Pharaoh. They now belong to God. So the sentence of sin, sin's penalty, has been dealt with instantaneously. But sin's power, its corrupting influence, is something that doesn't get taken away right away. They have to go through wilderness experiences. Even in the promised land, as they take uh, imperfect steps of obedience, God is at work removing the power of sin from their lives. So the penalty of sin can be removed in an instant, but the process of putting the power of sin to death in our life takes time. And that's a New Testament principle. When we come to Jesus, if there's genuine repentance, and we ask for forgiveness, as best as we know how, and we turn our lives over to Jesus, the Bible says that we are then justified in Christ. The penalty of sin is now removed. His blood covers us. It's not conditional. It's like, you're forgiven as long as, you know, these things are, you are now, there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The penalty of sin has been dealt with. But after I became a Christian, there was lots of patterns, and there still are, that are holding on that are uh, clamoring for domination in certain areas of my life. So I have to learn how to follow Jesus and walk as Jesus walked so that sin's power becomes less and less and Christ's power becomes more and more in my life. And that's a process. And the Bible calls that process sanctification as I grow in holiness. So when I talk about putting sin to death or um, confronting sin, I'm, I'm not talking about like a one and done I had this problem, I prayed about it to God, it's done. It, it can be done in the sense of forgiveness, but then I have to put mechanisms in place in my life to move forward to put those patterns to death so they don't re 
become repetitious and cyclical in my life. So one, we're supposed to leave Egypt eating unleavened bread. And the second one that I want to talk about this morning is that we are called to leave Egypt together. We leave Egypt together. One of the things that is, tends to be lost on Christians that um, Orthodox Jewish people understand better is that God saves people, plural. But when we hear that, we think God saves individuals. And that's absolutely true. I don't think you can be a Christian because of a decision someone else has made for you. You as an individual have to make that personal commitment to hand your life over to King Jesus. But notice how almost every book in the New Testament is written to a group of Christians. That, that is significant. Our New Testament books are not written like one-on-one uh, individual devotionals. Because that mode of engaging Scripture one-on-one as a kind of a primary foundational, that wasn't practiced for a long time within the church. First of all, people didn't have a Bible to do that. You had to get together with other people. Doesn't make it wrong, I'm just saying that wasn't the normal rhythm of how we leave Egypt. We don't just do it individually, we do it together. God saved the Israelites and made them into a nation. In Galatians 6, Paul writes to an early group of Christians, he says, therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. First century Jewish person has a very strong understanding of what it means to be family, much stronger than we would have. And he describes the church as being a family of God. First Peter 2.9, Peter says, but you, plural, like you all, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God that you might declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you, plural, have received mercy. So there's this movement in the New Testament to look back at the Exodus and say, look, what God is doing in the church is like a new Exodus. He's taking these people who are slaves to sin, he's making them slaves of righteousness. And there's this mission and this calling that he has, and it applies to every individual, but the calling is for the group. It's for everybody. He's not just making a bunch of priests. He's making a royal priesthood. In verse 10, he says, he doesn't say, although it's not untrue, but he doesn't say, you were once, like you individual were once not saved, now you are saved. It's you were once not a people. You weren't together. That's part of the evidence of the power of sin in our life, is that it fractures us and uh, atomizes us down into the smallest fractured components. And when God brings healing and brings congruence and begins to amend ourselves from the inside out, it's not just that he brings the disparate parts of who we are and helps us to walk in integrity, integratedness. He helps us to do that as a new humanity as well. That's why Hebrews 10.25 says, let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. Let's encourage one another all the more as you see the day approaching. There's this very clear New Testament push that says, keep meeting together. Don't think that you can kind of travel out of Egypt on your own. God has given you a group of people 
to help you move from your old life to new life in Christ and to help you unpack what that means. And this is the church. And that's why personally, I I mean, the older I get, the more convinced I am that not just church attendance, but church membership actually really matters. It's significant in a way that we maybe don't understand because we come at it through the front door of our culture's understanding of what membership means, not from Scripture's front door of what is actually happening in the formation of the church. And I know there's lots of people, I hear it all the time, believe me, I read about it, lots of pushback in this area, right? I can be committed to Jesus without being committed to the local church. And you're like, yep, that is technically true. I'm into Jesus, I'm into the whole kingdom thing, I'm all about the kingdom, I just don't think that the kingdom is localized in the church or... Uh, I think it's too legalistic or too constrictive to kind of make membership to the church a really significant uh, pillar of one's faith because, again, uh, my commitment to Jesus um, and, and my salvation is not connected to the church. It's, it's, it's about Jesus. And, you know, without going into a a number of rabbit trails. Absolutely, your salvation has nothing to do with the church. The church isn't a mediator of your salvation. Jesus is. But it might be important to th- ask yourself the question of what, what are the set of assumptions Jesus has for you once you give your life to him as it relates to, um, broadly speaking, the body of other Christians called the church. Does Jesus lay out any expectations? Are there any presumptions? Are there things that we see in the New Testament writings that might lead you to believe that living as a Christian with a posture that essentially says, I don't worry about these horizontal relationships. It's just about me and Jesus. Or I totally am committed to Jesus and I'm, I'm showing up, like I'm involved in the church, but like stuff like membership and like a piece of paper contract, uh, that's kind of, that's man-made. Is that actually true? I know there's a lot of people who balk at church membership. Um, For a lot of people, it feels too formal, too institutional, too unspiritual. I know lots of people who have been hurt by the acts of people within the church, maybe certain people in church leadership, maybe a pastor. And then they can kind of expand the blame from that to the church, right? This person or these collection of people hurt me or disappointed me, and now the church has disappointed me. Um, The church has hurt me. And then that becomes a justification um, to not enter into any kind of church membership. And so there's, there's this resistance. And believe me, and I, I want to say this as honestly as I can, I know what it means to be massively let down by people in the church. I'm not... Um, w- what I'm saying here doesn't come from a place of naivete or a place that um, has had a just a overwhelmingly positive um, no-issue track record with involvement and commitment and sacrifice for and within the local church. And so I'm not in a callous way saying, hey, just deal with it, um, nor am I coming from a place that doesn't understand, although all the particulars are always different, but um, who doesn't understand what it's like to be vulnerable and to place your trust in church leadership or 
the community of people around you, and then to feel just really let down, or even in some cases, maybe even betrayed. But I still, through all of those things, um, really believe that church membership matters. And so if you're here this morning and already you, you kind of feel there's a reaction, um, is he going to you know, put the pedal to the metal and talk about church membership and how, you know, kind of guilt me into this? Or, and I, I'm not going to do that at all. But I am going to invite you to do something. And that is, if you've been hurt by the church, if there's something that has happened that has transpired such that there is that hesitancy, or in your own mind's eye, you've rationalized or justified saying, I'm never going to be a member. I'll be involved or I'm committed to Jesus or, you know, but I'm just not, I'm never going to make that uh, step of membership commitment again. I do want to invite you this morning to think about grieving and mourning what has happened to you. Because in every area of our lives where we've been vulnerable, we've had that vulnerability betrayed, the natural tendency will always be retreat and harden ourselves, self-protection a little bit. And then obviously the more that happens, and the only way, it's so counterintuitive, but the only way to not let that posture slowly take over your life, more and more defensive, more and more hesitant, more and more careful, more and more suspicious, is to actually bring that hurt into the presence of God and through prayer and mourning and grief, grieve. Grieve that you couldn't have had this experience. Grieve that you were let down. Put your anger before God. Um, even if that never results in you becoming a member again, there's a lot of people who just haven't processed that hurt. And part of it is Maybe you haven't even been told you're allowed to be angry at God and angry um, and, and to process that. That is something to grieve over. A, a really either abusive or manipulative or unhealthy relationship within the local church or within leadership within the local church is something that should be grieved over. It should be mourned. And I'm, my counsel to you would be to mourn those failings so that it doesn't prevent you from stepping into a new place of healing and hope in the future. I love the quote by Walter Brueggemann, who when he looks at um, the prophetic books of the Old Testament, one of his summations is, especially the book of Lamentations, is without grief, there can be no newness. You, just, you, you can't experience um, new life in Christ in successive stages, not just to become a Christian, but to continue to grow if you don't take the time to grieve and mourn hurt and wounds, whether those are self-inflicted, other-inflicted, whether it was intentional or not, grieving is so important to long-term sustained spiritual growth and maturity. When you take the risk, risk to be vulnerable and to be exposed and that's hurt, of course you want to double down and I'm never going to let that happen again. But the danger is that you can succeed at that and you can succeed at self-protecting yourself to such an extent that this pattern that you intended to only apply to this particular thing, me and the institutional church, it actually becomes a posture and pattern that spreads throughout your whole life. Like leaven spreads through dough, you actually can't contain that posture of being closed off, 
and in your marriage, relationships, and all these different spheres, that posture of self-protection and hesitancy becomes more and more and more comfortable, and it builds a momentum. And you get decade after decade built up, and you are just numb and cold to the most important things in life. You're safe, but it has come at a high cost. A more painful but joyful way to live is as you encounter pain, deep disappointment, deep hurts, is to mourn them so that you can continue to move forward unhindered. Now, even there, I'm, I know there's going to be people who are going to say, okay, that's great, Jeff. That's, I'm going to take that and I'm going to run with it. I'm going to mull that over a little bit. But, you know, I totally can be involved in this church or a church without being a member. And I would say, absolutely. We don't, you know, negatively discriminate against people who aren't members. We don't withhold, it's not like people after the service come up to me and say, would you pray for me? And I'm like, well, can I see your member card? Because that's like a privilege only member. Like, we don't, that's not, so yes, of course you can be involved in this church without being a member. But I would frame it like this. You can also be a Christian without being baptized. So why bother? Like that, you can be saved without being baptized. So why bother? Membership is a public declaration. Like baptism, it's a public declaration to a localized group of Christians that God has placed you in for a season of your life. And it's a public declaration that says, as a Christian, I want everyone who can hear the sound of my voice who's here this morning to know that I want to be recognized as part of this particular body of believers. I'm just one voice, I'm just one person, but I want everyone here to know that I want to do my part to help make this community as strong, as healthy, as Jesus-loving, as mission-bringing, as joy-instilling, as caring, creative, and vibrant as this community can be this side of heaven. I know this church isn't perfect. I'm not expecting perfection from any of you or the church leadership, just like I hope you don't expect perfection from me. But I am convinced and convicted that God leads us out of Egypt together. And God's put, God puts people in our lives and binds us together beyond just casual commitment so that we can learn to follow Jesus together. And in ways that I may never fully understand, I need you and I believe that you need me. And I believe that in following Jesus together, we're a living witness to a world that increasingly only values commitments to the extent that there's an appropriate return on investment. Jesus shows us a different way. Jesus shows us a better way. And in committing to membership, I'm declaring to everyone that I am choosing that way. That's what church membership means. You know, a note on church membership that you might not have thought through, but that is important to think through, through the lens of the Exodus, is that one of the patterns of Egypt, one of the patterns that, uh, one of the enslaving, self-serving patterns that is definitely at play in our culture, that God is calling all of us out of, is consumeristic transactional commitment. 
Consumeristic, meaning what's in it for me. Transactional, I'm totally willing to be committed to the extent that there's a fair exchange of whatever it is, money, love, commitment back, all serve as long as I'm getting, the scales are kind of equally balanced. There are some people who look at this and they think, yeah, that's just normal life. That is not normal life. That's a terrible way to live. That is an Egypt. That is a way of thinking about relationships that is really, really unhealthy and is ultimately focused on the self because your commitment is contingent on other people fulfilling what you want or you're gone. So self-fulfillment is the center of this commitment. But the kingdom of God pattern is very, very different. It's not easy, but it's life-giving, and it's very different. And the pattern is this, covenantal self-sacrificing commitment. And that's what real commitment is. It's covenantal, it's meaning I'm promising to love you even when loving you is hard or it's challenging or it's dif- difficult. That's why sometimes you'll hear people say, well, I don't, I don't need to get married, it's just a piece of paper. Well, it depends on your theology. If you think that marriage is just a piece of paper, then I I can see where you're coming from. The problem is the Bible does not talk about marriage as just a piece of paper. There's a process whereby signing that piece of paper and declaring publicly, I'm entering into this kind of covenantal relationship, that I'm going to love you in sickness and in health for better or for worse. That's important because that's the way God loves us. So we're to mirror that with other people. We're to mirror that with our relationships with other Christians. And so as a Christian, this kingdom of God pattern of covenantal, self-sacrificial commitment, it gets expressed not as, as long as I'm getting blank, I'm committed. As long as I'm getting this from you, it's good. The kingdom of God says, as long as I'm able to serve here, to love here, to care for people here, and to pursue Jesus here in the context of this community, I will be committed. If things are really in play that don't allow me to properly love and honor God, love people, if there's interference on that level, yeah, then we can have a t- conversation about walking away from that church and that church leadership because they'd be, they'd be going in a completely different direction. But as long as there's room for me and a space for me to love and to serve and to care for and to pursue Jesus here, I'm gonna be, commi- I'm gonna be committed. And I understand, again, I'm not entering into that commitment naively. I understand that might mean there are seasons of my life where I'm pouring out a lot. No one's saying thank you. No one's acknowledging it. No one is returning the favor. And that's okay. Because if that's the worst case scenario, then I'm, I'm going to grow closer to Jesus because it's going to help me to understand how he feels when he pours so many blessings into my life and I can go days or weeks or months without giving the appropriate thankfulness and response to that. So the worst case scenario, it's just gonna lean me deeper into Christ-like love and appreciation for what God puts up with in my life from me. So this isn't naivete, but it says, I want membership to be a vehicle through which I love and bless this church. Of course, I'm trusting God that they're giving me blessings in return, but that's not why I'm doing it. And I'm not making the commitment contingent or conditional on that. I just want to love and serve and bless. Leaving Egypt with unleavened bread, leaving Egypt together. These are challenging implications of the text. 
But in giving us his meal as a Passover meal, I think Jesus wants us to hear these words. But he wants to reframe these things so that we are challenged to move into gritty, real, hard, kingdom of God, new life together. But as we do that, God breaks into our lives with um, an interference that I can only call like a constructive disruption. And he actually binds us and builds us up and moves us forward together in a way that only comes from a community that says, we're going to be Jesus-focused and we're going to try and figure this out together. Perfect people need not apply, but people who are sincerely interested in following Jesus, yeah, come on board. Let's do this together. Let's pray. God, as we follow you out of Egypt, help us to be focused on you. Help us not to be distracted to the right or to the left, but to fix our eyes on you, the author and perfecter of our faith. And as we do, God, may you bring to light the things that we individually need to confront, the things that we as a people need to confront. And God, give us a vision for your heart and what you would want just this, this embodied group of people to be as a community. Heal our hearts, God, whether the wounds that are there are prevent, preventing us from moving into something like church membership or just prevent us from taking any step of vulnerability whether it's a small group or just reaching out to someone or serving God, help us to deal with the wounds of the past, the wounds from our own Egypts, so that we can, un, in an unhindered way, follow you into the future that you have for us. Give us grace to that end, God. In Jesus' name, amen.